Warning, the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch, contains adult content. Harry and others use profanity, adult language, and discuss adult topics, and so shall we. One more warning, this podcast may contain spoilers. I must stress this for this chapter and the entire podcast, so please proceed with extreme caution. They call him the Dollmaker. The serial killer who stalked Los Angeles and left a grisly coloring card on the faces of his female victims. With a single flawless shot, Detective Harry Bosch thought he had ended the city's nightmare. Now the dead man's widow is suing Harry and the LAPD for killing the wrong man. An accusation that rings terrifyingly true when a new victim is discovered with the doll maker's macabre signature. Now, for the second time, Harry must track down the deaf dealer who is very much alive before he strikes again. It's a blood track quest that takes Harry from the hard edges of LA's night to the last place he ever wanted to go, the darkness of his own heart. Hello, and welcome to the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch. I'm Philip Parker, a retired police detective with over 29 years of law enforcement experience. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please don't forget to rate us five stars or better. Please follow us on Twitter at the Thin Blue Line Pod or our Facebook and Instagram pages, which are set up just for our fans. Also, don't forget to join us at www.thethinbluelinepod.com for more investigative content where you will find more detailed experience concerning Harry Bosch and Michael Conley. Now all that's out the way, it's time to get back to work and probe into chapters one through four of The Concrete Blonde. So far on the Thin Blue Line podcast, we've taken deep dives into the first two books of the Harry Bosch series, The Black Echo and The Black Ice, that was created by famed author Michael Conley. So in today's episode, we will be taking a deep dive into the third book of the series. As always, there's the prerequisite spoiler alert. It's my intention to stay away from spoilers, but sometimes shit happens. So please proceed with extreme caution. So take off your suit jackets and put on your jumpers because you might get dirty as it's time to explore chapters one through four of The Concrete Blonde. Let's open up the murder book and turn the page to the chronological record so that we can do an investigative summary of the information gathered thus far in this chapter. During the intro of this book, Harry walks us through the events concerning the shooting of Norman Church, a.k.a. the Dollmaker. Harry had received a phone call from a prostitute stating that she was with a serial killer. Believing that the dollmaker had another victim, Harry rushes in and kills the church after repeated warnings to stay still. Upon examination of the room, Bosch realizes that the church was reaching for a toupee. Outside the courtroom, 
Posh has a cigarette when Lieutenant Harvey Pounds calls him and asks him what's happening in court. Pounds informs Posh that he's received a note from a doll maker. And while at first, Harry believes it's a hoax, the lieutenant asks Bosch to meet him at Bing's, which is where the letter informed that a body would be located inside a concrete slab. Upon arrival to Bing's, Bosch takes off his suit jacket before adorning his jumpsuit. He looks into the concrete hole the jackhammers had opened. Surprised, Bosch asks where the body is and was informed by Jared Egger that the body was in the coroner's wagon. Bosch goes over to have a look and the coroner's investigator, Larry Sakai, tells him it looks like the doll maker is back. Pretending to examine the whole corpse, Bosch unzips the bag, looks past the now obvious implants and down to her toes for the sign of the doll maker's signature. An unadvertised extra, the doll maker always paints the victim's toes pink as well as applying makeup, then paints a small white cross on one toe. The signature was there. Back at the court, the judge instructs the jury that they will begin hearing opening statements, which each lawyer will ask them to consider the evidence and look at the case from their perspective. Harry watches Honey Chandler, but decides to tune her out for what she is saying. He knows if he listens to her, he will have a difficult time restraining his emotions. She tells the jury that Harry Bosch is a rogue cop who went forward without evidence and murdered an innocent man in cold blood. The attorney for the government, Ron Belt, uses only 10 minutes of his allotted hour for his opening statement. Bosch is nervous about it, but Belk tells him not to worry. Later, Harry drives back to the station and finds the empty but for Jerry Edgar, who's still trying to identify the recently found body. Edgar tells Bosch that prints were lifted and they are awaiting DOJ checks. Harry talks to Sylvia, but makes excuses not to see her later that night, wanting instead to go home and be alone. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's lift up the yellow tape and examine the clues. For the defining theme for chapters one through four is, whoever fights monsters should see to it that in the process, he doesn't become a monster. And when you look into the abyss, the abyss also looks into you. Hello, and welcome back to the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch. And we're hitting the streets right now. And I'd like to just start off because you know this book is going to be good. And the reason I say that because Michael Connolly, right from the beginning, punches you in the face with a particular line. And I love, again, right off the bat, it says um, the house on Lakeside was dark. The windows were as empty as a dead man's eyes. I'm like, okay. I mean, he, he's putting it out there right from the very, very beginning. And, you know, one of the things that, okay, when you run an informant, and this, this is classic, and this, again, I knew Michael had inside um, information or inside access to police, because running a source 
is very difficult. And Michael captures this right off the bat because what happens with this witness, and not just a source, but I say a source in particular, but witnesses um, in general, if you don't ask certain things, they don't tell you. And you might think it's obvious, but again, when you read it again, um, he's in the bathroom. She said, that's where all the stuff was. And Bosch looked at her from the window. He said, what stuff? Uh, I checked the cabinets. You know, you know, I was in there just to see what he had. You know, a girl had to be careful. And I saw the stuff, the makeup shit, you know, the mascara, lipstick, compact stuff. That's how I knew it was him. He used all that stuff to paint him up when he was done, you know, when he was done killing them. And Bosch says, why didn't you tell me that over the phone? And her line back was, you didn't ask. You know? <laughs> That's classic. You, you, you would be amazed. And I learned the hard way. I learned the hard way. You ask questions. You, and sometimes to people, annoyance. But you ask the same question like 20 different ways. And I know at home I had to turn that off because my wife would kill me. But at work, Again, any police officer out there who's listening, at your, appara- at, your, at your peril, make sure you ask questions 20 ways. Or even you know, ask, you know, is there some things that I didn't ask you? Just that little line, because you'll be amazed how many times someone then says, oh, well, you forgot to ask me about the gun underneath the closet, in, in the closet. Like, okay, tell me about the gun, but you think in the back of your head, okay, why the fuck didn't you tell me about the gun? I mean, you're here, but okay, tell me about the gun. And so, you know, even while we're just in this portion of the book, the very beginning, Michael gets you into an officer's fight or flight mode where and Harry jumps up the steps and, you know, as he's going up the steps, he thinks he's announcing it to the world because you're, he's that focused, that in tune. And again, they train us to try to don't get tunnel vision, but it's hard to do. It's very hard to do. I'm never, I can't really see that I... Um, I mastered it. I didn't even want to say I'm some great uh, entry or police officer when it came to that kind of stuff. So, but I do remember it's extremely tough not to get tunnel vision. But Michael puts you in that particular mode as Harry goes up the stairs. And, you know, I want to, this whole thing about why Harry, um, why Harry did this and Harry did that, or he, he didn't do this or he didn't do that. Well, what, like one of the first things he said that he didn't, uh, he knew he couldn't call for backup because he left his rover. Now, after you do some math and everything like that, and I, Mike, oh, excuse me, Harry is kind of the same age as my father, and they both went to Vietnam. And shortly after Vietnam, they you know joined the police department, and now Harry is in his forties or something like that during this time. Back before, you know, any all major cities, the the mode of communications was call boxes. And again, I'm, I'm pretty sure everyone's seen a call box, but just in case, you know, you know, don't want to assume a call box was just that. It were like these boxes on corners and they were spaced out every so many blocks and police officers had to do what they call pull the box where you had to call them as a phone inside there. You had to reach inside, pick up the phone and make a call into the station and they would give you updates or you give them any updates. And that was a mode of communication. And then most of the major cities switched from that to car-mounted radios, where radios were in the car. They weren't rovers. They weren't handhelds or portable ones. And then they switched over to portable ones. So by this time, I'm, I'm thinking maybe 12 years, Harry went without having a portable radio. Again, one of the things I was taught was muscle memory. 
Um, when you, it was, uh, and going back to the range, all range instructors told me it was easier to teach a person who never shot a weapon opposed to unlearning bad behavior or bad, bad mechanics from a person who thought they knew how to shoot, but actually was messing up. So let's think about the same muscle memory. Here is a fight or flight. Harry is tuned in and he didn't grab his radio. Now, again, that's not an excuse. I'm just giving an explanation, maybe what was going through his mind. Because again, I was talking to my father. And I said, hey, is that, I mean, for me, when I first came on, I had a radio at my hip, you know, a portable radio. I said, how likely is that? He said, it's very likely because the guys who were switching over from, again, going from a call box to a radio just mounted in the car to have the portable ones, you had to relearn again to always grab your radio. Again, not giving an excuse, but just maybe give an explanation why Harry didn't grab his radio. Because I know a lot of people say, okay, why wouldn't you grab your radio? It could be a possibility. Now, one of the things that happened when Harry busted through the door and, you know, he's giving orders to church or the doll maker. You know, I never actually shot anybody, but I can tell you. So when I was um, doing the dynamic entry, when we were doing um, search warrants, narcotic search warrants or any type of search warrants, I was sometimes on the stack in the stack, you know, and you're the first person, second, third, whatever person in the line going through the door. And I like having a shotgun. So I had a shotgun. And so typically after the person breaches, a shotgun will go through first. And the reason is it's kind of obvious because a shotgun, um, again, accounts on what type of ammunition you had in there. So I'm just giving you my, my experience. I always had in my shotgun uh, a round that was like a buckshot that was shoot, that was spread out. So when you go through the door, whatever was, whatever was across the threshold, if it was such a danger that I deemed it necessary to shoot, then it would, it would, it would, it would be a scatter pattern because immediately it's kind of hard to aim right off the bat. You know, it wasn't scattered like, you know, shoot maybe five feet apart, but I hope you understand my point. It was, it, it, you'd have to be as accurate in your aim. So I'll go through the door and this guy, you know, I'm in full police paraphernalia. I have on um, Ray jacket. We, you know, you know, the, the outside of the vest with the, with the tactical vest on Police, police, we yelling, you know, search warrant, you know, we hit the door, search warrant, search warrant. And I get there and this guy, and we look at each other, and he starts moving towards something in his waistband. And I'm like, and again, Michael Conley gives a great demonstration of things just move so slow. And I remember yelling, police, let me see your hands. Police, put your hands up, giving all these commands. And Again, I'm not a, a, a gun barrel guy, so it, it gets so you 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 uh, guys out there who know these things more than I do. So let's say the shotgun that I had, um, the pounds to pounds per square inch to pull the trigger to make it engage the hammer to uh, to shoot the propellant, the actual round. Say that took. And again, I'm don't hold me to the numbers, but I'm just giving you my, uh, what happened. Say it takes five pounds of pressure to shoot that particular, to pull that trigger to make a round go off. I know, because the guy kept moving slowly towards his waistband. And just like Harry was saying in the book, like, what the fuck are you doing? We just yelled police, search warrant. We breached the door, and you're reaching towards your waistband? Are you kidding me? 
And I had that conversation in that nano of a second. And he got down there, and as he was reaching towards his waistband, I can see something protruding, which was which was um handle of a weapon. And he got right there, and I had probably four point nine 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 pounds of that five pounds of that trigger pulled. And then something snapped in him. He looked at me and I looked at him. Just like Eric, Harry said here, he looked into Norman Church's eyes and it was eyes of a killer. And this guy didn't have, you know, it wasn't that exotic. But he looked at me. I think he looked at me like, dude, you're about to get shot. You're about to get shot. And he stopped. And then he put his hands up slowly. And just like, again, afterwards, I'm yelling, what the fuck are you doing? Didn't you not see it? I'm a police officer? Did you not hear? And he, and he said, I, I, I froze. I, I don't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. And so, again, I never got into a shooting, but that is the closest I came to getting into a shooting because, like I said, nine, 4.999 pounds of that five pounds was pulled in that trigger because he was just about to get shot. And thank goodness I didn't have to go through it. Um, he he stopped, so I, I stopped. I de-escalated, and we will move on. You know, one of the things that Michael Connolly got really well is the difference between federal court and state and local, of course. He, he actually got it right. And, and again, so when you get into federal court, most of the time, again, I'm old, so, but you have um, marble walls, very hard benches <laughs> inside the courtroom, very professional and extremely regimented. And we had we did we had in our courtroom, our federal court, there were benches, but very 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 few and far between. Again, but if you go to the state court, then there was benches all over the place because you you waited around because there was so much so much happening. There was so many act, so much activity going on. And again, I, I just t point these little things out because these are the things that make some other things that that uh, Michael talks about so authentic. So he got the he got the idea and got the description of the difference between federal court and state and local courts down to uh down to a science. So it got down to a point. And you know what was interesting? Again, he he made his book, he made his book back in 1994, and he described what boat people are. And I I you know, you can read the book and he one of the things I thought that he said again from the book, mostly they were women and children. And the husbands and or fathers or loved ones held in lockup. Mostly they were black and brown. It's crazy how things haven't changed. I mean, it's, it's interesting how he wrote about that back then and gave it notice. And I just thought that was kind of interesting. So then we see Harry um, reading the Times article about the shooting. And Bremer had wrote the story that Harry was disciplined for not calling backup. And one of the things that's great about this particular book now, you're with the third book into the Harry Bosch series and is now starting to feel very familiar. And one of the good things is that that's the familiar is this conversation or this article takes us back to the conversation that Harry had with Chief Irving in the Black Echo. And again, no Chief Irving told Harry, hey, we had a decision to make. And, you know, you don't be so self-righteous because we could have screwed you, but we decided just to push you off into a Hollywood division. And I, and I like how 
Michael ties all these things together. Because now, if you decide to jump into this whole series, now you got to go back and read or find out, okay, what is he talking about? Yeah, I know. Again, I know this is very small. But again, it's the small stuff that I absolutely live for. This is very small. So Bosch hates the fact uh, in the Times article, they show a picture of him, you know, as a copy of his police ID uh, in the paper. And it looks like a mugshot. And you know what? I don't know any police officer who likes their departmental um, picture. Because uh, listeners, the same guy who's taking the pictures for us, when we get out, when we get our ID, especially back then, is the same guy who's down the cell block who took the pictures of the criminals. <laughs> he had some, he had some uh, experience on taking photos. So they say, hey, well, you can do both. So again, that's and that was back in the day. But I remember that. I remember looking at my ID photos, like, what the hell? And again, Harry's right. You you kind of look like a like a suspect yourself. And now we have Harry um, getting a phone call from Pounds. And Pounds is such a dick. And one of the things that I like, uh, again, from the book, though Pounds was a uh, commander of Hollywood detectives, including Homicide Table, he never actually worked homicides himself. Like many in the department administrators, he climbed up the ladder was based, excuse me, his climb up the ladder was based on test scores and brown nosing, not experience. Boy, is that true. That is so true. Now, I have encountered both, both kinds, like actually three different types of supervisors. One supervisor was just like Harry just said. The only reason they got up through the ranks because they can take a test and they brown nose. So they got in these specialized units. But instead of not understanding or not their, appreciating their limitations, they, over, they try to overcome it by being an administrator opposed to, especially in the investigations. So then I had one, you know, another type of guy who, a supervisor who came up through the ranks just like me. But instead of just staying as a detective, decided to take the test and the department at the time was doing, hey, you can't. At one time, believe it or not, the department said you could not supervise detectives or investigators unless you yourself was, especially at a certain level. Then I had a third type, which is kind of, you know, either the second type or the the last type, this last type of supervisor are the best ones. The supervisor was great administrator, but said, hey, my my job is to supervise people with experience. So if there was something that came up, there's something that needs to be known, and that supervisor couldn't answer, especially when it came to investigators, that's what you have. Again, Harry is a D, uh, as a D3, um, that's what you have the D3s for. You know, they have been around. They know this stuff. They went from a detective, uh, a detective, detective two to detective three. And a supervisor that says, I have experienced people. Hold on for a second. Let me go ask Phil. Phil, come here. You know, it, it, he doesn't get the ego. Their ego is not based on the rank on their shoulders. They're, so their ego is best based on my guys are the best and I have the best. So let me grab one of them and we can find out what's going on. Don't, give me those two. Give me those two um, type of supervisors. Unfortunately, unfortunately, uh, the departments are mostly going back to the Harry, Harry uh, excuse me, Harvey Pounds of the uh, of law enforcement, where you can, you can take a good test and you brown those and you get into these specialized units, and it just causes so much turmoil. Turmoil, 
and the guys don't respect you. They don't. Um, and you, you, it's, you're not an effective commander. You're a good paper pusher, but you're not a good effective commander. And we, I know I mostly perform at best. You know, of course, I gave it my all. But I performed best when I had a supervisor who, one, came up through the ranks like me, and or a supervisor who had no experience but had no problem saying, hey, I don't have no experience with that. Like, case in point, I didn't have any experience. With, I've always messed up my administrative paperwork. I always turn my monthly reports in late. I was terrible at getting some administrative stuff done. That wasn't me. Again, not to say that that's right, that who's better at it, but I knew I had some very some shortcomings. So when I had when I needed some help when it comes to my paperwork or something to that effect, I raised my hand or I went to somebody who knew exactly what they were doing. So then, so you have the Harry the the Harvey Pounds of the world, and they're such a dick because no, just like and this and this is so true. They draw out these, instead of just getting to the point, again, uh, a, a supervisor, one or two, excuse me, the supervisor I just explained, the second type or the third type would say, hey, Phil, yeah, what's going on? Hey, look, we just got a letter in uh, at the station. It looks like it's from the doll maker again. We think it's BS. I just sent um, Edgar over to where the, the uh, to Bing's, that's where the body's supposed to be. I need you to respond over there to be an expert to see if this is a copycat or what we need to do. Boom, straight to the point. Tell me what you need. I'm on it. Not this whole tap dancing thing. And because that's all Harvey's trying to do, or Lieutenant Powell's is trying to do, is get a rise out of Harry. And like, wait a minute, why would you want to get a rise out of one of your best workers? Why would you want to do that other than because you're a good administrator and you want to be a dick and you want to flex on them? And, you know, one of the things, so when we get there, when Harry gets there at Bing's, I love the familiarity or being familiar. You know, I love the familiar setting because, you know, we already did it at the Black Echo. You know, again, so if you're not sure what police work is, again, Michael is bringing you back into or uh, behind the yellow tape and he's showing you uh, what Harry does. He takes off his suit jacket and he puts on his jumper. Again, the same thing he did back in the Black Echo. The best line I like is, you know, Harvey says, oh, uh, very good. I wish um, I thought to bring mine. Like, come on, dude. We know you don't have no damn jumper. You're not going to get it. You don't get yourself dirty. And again, I wouldn't expect you to. Again, again, a good supervisor, like, uh, that's what I got Phil for. That's what I got Harry. Uh, Harry, put your jumper suit on and get in there and uh, tell me what you see. I mean, that's what a good, I mean, or or maybe just have it just in case you need some hands to help out with something, it doesn't hurt that your supervisor jump, you know, throws his jumpsuit on, his or her jumpsuit on, and gets in there and helps you out. And you know, one of the great things that Michael Conley does is he gets you into what, is, what was happening at the time. And what was happening at the time, and again, I've seen it in my department, is that you know, um, Harry and Pounds are talking, and Pounds says, you know, again from the book, I don't understand why those people burn their own neighborhood. And Boss knew that the fact that Pounds didn't understand those people did what they did is one reason that it was going to happen again. I spoke about this before. You got to have the citizens buy in to do your job because you, you're not there. They live there. 
And I tell you right now, I, and I said it before and I said it again, one of my best informants was a little lady who lived in the neighborhood. She told me everything. But if I had a those against those people attitude, I wouldn't get shit done. You know, because you, you have to have uh, the citizens buy-in, the community buy-in. Now, I know some people, you know, community policing and all that kind of stuff. Again, you know, sometimes I think departments take it overboard. But basically, the community policing was just a polished way to say, get out your car, talk to people, uh, interact with people. So they, one, know that you're human, and you know that they're human. And they understand that you're doing a job, and so when you need their help, they will give it to you. And you know, did you guys get that one line that it was incredible that Bosch said, you know, again from the book, Bosch looked at it as a cycle. Every 25 years or so, the city had its soul torched by the fires of reality. What a line. I mean, that's just, whew. again, and, and, and it's so true. And it's, Kind of possibly, you know, you see here in 2019, you see those flames being stoked again. And so, you know, we have Harry interacting with Sakai. And if you remember back in the Black Echo, Harry does not like Sakai because Sakai, he even said it back then, he thought that Sakai had been an informant for the newspapers. And here we, here we, here we have Sakai shows up on the scene of this particular person in the concrete and Sakai is trying to pump Harry for information about, do you think it's a doll maker? And Harry's been very noncommittal. You know, he's not answering particular questions of Sakai because he thinks, and it's probably rightfully so, especially the way Sakai is trying to pump up for information is that he was the informant, you know, uh, for the newspaper when it comes to, again, that's how the, the newspaper started calling um, this particular uh, serial killer, the the doll maker, and then we see a line again. I love that uh, Michael Conley put into the book because it's happened to me before, where he says, you know, after Harry confirmed the decedent and possibly is a doll maker, he felt the first wave of paranoia poke into his brain, and you start. I remember having that feeling. You're like, wait a minute, I know I did everything right. And then you start just really quickly going back over everything again. And again, just it's a, it's a first sense of paranoia just start poking through the brain. And that's happened to me before. And, and it's a scary and very unsettling feeling, very unsettling feeling because you had so you had no doubt. You had no doubt about what you did and the manner which you did it. But then something like this happens. Um, you're going to need a lot of strong fortitude to push your way through. I'd like to take a quick break and go over the question of the day concerning chapter three of The Concrete Blonde, which reads, during a break of the civil trial concerning the Dollmaker case, plaintiff's attorney, Honey Chandler, tells Bosch that in her opening statement depicting him as a monster wasn't personal. Should Bosch take it personally? And the two questions were, yes, 
over the top comment or no part of your job. And it was very interesting that this was almost even, but um, 53% of you said, no, this is part of his job. He needs to take it. You know, don't take it personally. 47% of you guys said he should take it personally. Now, one of my uh, favorite, um, I'm not sure if I could, I'm not going to put her name out there, but one of the uh, avid uh, follower of this podcast, uh, she says both. And I like, I like what she says. She said both. Attorneys say anything to set the stage, inflammatory or not. And the target has every justification to feel defamed, insulted, vilified. No cut and dry, bright line answer, which is true. It, she's absolutely right. There is no cut, bright line answer. Now, me personally, it's part of the job. It's hard to not take it personally. Even Harry said it in here is that he didn't even pay attention to what Honey Chandler was saying in her opening statement because he knew if he listened to what she said, it would be hard for him to uh, control and maintain his emotions. So, but again, I thought it was very interesting. 53% of you said no, it was part of your job and you need to just go, don't take it personally. Telling you it's hard not to take it personally though. And I agree with Harry. The way I don't take it personally is don't pay attention to what uh, the defense uh, attorney says. As of this podcast, I wanted to give my condolences to my first commander. My first commander recently passed away. And what I mean by my first commander was when I first got out of the academy, I got assigned to this one really rough area of the city. And after I got certified, I could ride by myself. And this commander, I'm going to give you a story of what happened. But that set up 29 years of law enforcement. I'm going to tell you what happened and the reason why I'm taking this time in this podcast. So I'm a new, I'm a new um, rookie officer, certified, badass. I could ride by myself and, you know, do great things. And I was working one of the, you know, being a rookie, you get one of the worst tours. And one of the worst tours is a Sunday morning because Sunday morning, most guys went out, you know, we partied on Saturday night. And, you know, last thing you want to do was turn right back around and go to work on a Sunday morning. But here I was, Sunday morning. And I go, I turn this corner and I see all these cars parked all over the place. I mean, two abreast, fire hydrants and everything, everything. I'm like, oh, hell no. So I pick, I pull up my ticket book and I proceed to write tickets on these cars and write tickets, 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 tickets. So then maybe 45 minutes later, I get a radio call from the dispatcher and it went something like this. Cruiser 29. So, you know, oh, oh shit. You know, say Cruiser 29. Everyone, the radio goes silent because Cruiser 29, everyone knows is the commander of the, of the, of the precinct. Cruiser 29, dispatch. Could you have the unit? Who, who is Officer Parker and his supervisor? Who, who, who's that? <laughs> this is the conversation. And so the dispatch say, uh, Officer Parker? And I get a radio, uh, Officer Parker by. Yeah, have him and his supervisor respond to my office. <laughs> And back then, 
you know, everyone start the radio start clicking, click, 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 click. That means you're in trouble. <laughs> everyone. So, and this is this happened. This actually happened. So, I come back. I, I pull into the back of the station, and literally, literally, it looked like the Soul Train dance line when it comes to no one was dancing, but people were, people were lined up on both sides of me. When you walked into the back of the station, everyone was like, Phil, what did you do? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Phil, what you do? What you do? What you do? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. So <laughs> I go upstairs to his office and inside there is a bunch of people and they are irate. And I look through all these people and I see my sergeant and lieutenant and they have their heads down. They have their heads down. So I go through all the people and they see me and you talk about the stink eye. I'm, you you would have thought I just slapped someone's baby. You know? So I go in, they shut the door and the commander says, is this him? Is this the dumb motherfucker right here who wrote tickets on people in church? <laughs> is this the guy? And the sergeant said, yeah, that's him. He said, is he certified? And the sergeant said, yeah, he just got certified, chief. Well, maybe we need to uncertify him. <laughs> he looked at me. He said, "You, what possessed you to write tickets on people that people are in church? What possessed you to do that? And I looked up and said, I didn't know they were in church. He said, didn't you see the damn church that they were in front of? Did you see the building? And I, I said, no, sir, I didn't. I didn't see it. He said, well, look, and he had a whole stack of them. Remember, he had all my tickets. He said, you take these tickets out. You take these tickets and you do what we call don't drop them. You know, when again, dropping them means then they go to adjudication, whatever, whatever, whatever. You go out there and you apologize to everyone out there that you, that what you did and you won't ever do that again. And I had to go out there with <laughs> tickets in my hand I put my head down and I had to I apologize to the people. Now, I give you that long story and I said it set you up. Because you know what the commander, what he did was he, he chewed me out. He didn't write me up. And I learned a lesson because once I ate humble pie, I messed up. I ate humble pie. Those people saw me and then they were telling me I got out the car, I talked to them. They said, hey, you know what? John down the corner, you might. Oh, I heard you guys were looking for a blue sedan. They became some of my best, my best constituents. And but I learned a valuable lesson from that commander, and that lesson was, you, you, well, it was a lot. But most of most of it, I got out of it was when you're wrong, admit it, and then also to turn that into something that could be useful for your career. And I just wanted to give a shout out to him. He, he's passed away. And um, I wanted to thank him because the, that type of leadership, that type of mentoring is very, is not found nowadays. And again, I'm not trying to get in my soapbox here, our listeners, and I'm going to get back to Harry. But we need to go back. Sometimes, I know I'm old and I say that, but sometimes we need to go back. The community is not the enemy. And the police aren't the enemy. We're there to work together. 
And when when you make a mistake, even the community, when they make mistakes, everyone can just admit that we are human and we make mistakes. And there was no malice in, in long, as long as there was no malice or ill uh, intent behind the mistake. Then let's just say that and move on. So thank you very much, Chief. I hope you rest in peace. So then we have Harry being in front of uh, Judge uh, Keyes, Alan Keyes. And I've had judges, male and female judges, like um, Judge Keyes. And you don't fuck around in that courtroom. You just don't play around. And so, again, that description of a man like or a judge like Alan Keyes, I've been in front of him and I recognize him. And <laughs> I, think, I think Michael Conley did a great job of, of describing him. And one of the lines I like also, again, from the book, as he watched her start, Bosch remembered the thud he felt in his chest when he heard that she, Money Chandler, was Church's lawyer. She was that good. That's why they called her Money. <laughs> uh, but you know what was interesting? I, I actually been that way before. I felt that way before. Again, I haven't had a civil case, but in some some professional, uh, in some defense, um, criminal cases, excuse me, in some criminal cases, I didn't feel a thud, but you knew your shit better be tight because this uh, defense attorney you're going against were, it was the, one of the best. And, but, you know, that works in reverse, too. Sometimes, you know, I learned a lesson a long time ago. This one DEA agent, when I first got to, uh, got to do work federal cases, federal levels, is that, he told me, I remember, you know, doing some report and I said something to the effect, something stupidly like I said, well, that's good enough. And he looked, turned around and, and snapped at me and said, look, dude, I investigate cases so I don't go to trial. And that has stuck with me. That stuck with me for the last 20, about the last 20 years. No, I was, uh, maybe 25 years because I had about four years on when I met this guy. And that's true. You know, I investigate cases not to go to trial. and it's overwhelming evidence. You know, it's not, do it's not, it kills us a, a fly with a sledgehammer because I didn't want to leave any doubt, any doubt that the guy who we charged, this is the evidence we have against them and they did it. And the cool thing with that did was you develop a reputation. Again, like I got told you before, the first thing that comes through the door is your rep. And you yourself develop a reputation amongst defense attorneys. And they say, oh, shit, that's Phil coming down the pike. Uh, dude, mm, I've been in front of this guy before. His shit's tight. So you, you, know, so you, you, you had an edge, an uh, advantage already when you went into your criminal cases when it comes to certain defense attorneys because you had a reputation of your, your shit being together. And one of the lines, and I think, I think that Michael have put into here, the judge Keyes has said to the lawyers, because because Chandler had pointed at Bosch and was very inflammatory in her in her tone and her voice, and you know Bulk had objected and all that kind of stuff. But one of the things that Judge Keyes stopped him and said, you know, Miss Chandler, you don't need to put any emphasis on words. And again, from the book, words are beautiful and ugly, all on their own. Let them stand for themselves. Again, one of the fears and what Harry said that cops go through. And it's such a great 
line, and again, it's such a great sentiment of what cops feel about is that the lawyers and the judges and the jurors were going to take a week or maybe longer to dissect what he thought and done in less than five seconds. And I mean, but again, that's part of the job, but that's what's going on. They're going to take frame by frame, nuance by nuance. You did this, but why didn't you do that? And, and dissect it. And then they're going to fillet you. You know, one of the things that I remember, and again, you have to, I, I give you these flashbacks. I'm trying to put you into what cops think when they, at the prosecutor's table. So again, I didn't have a civil case, but in federal, in federal court, when you are the lead investigator, you are the client for the government and you sit right next to the prosecutor at the lead table. And I'm going to tell you, this is how hard it is not to take things personally. So I had a case and the case was, was a rock solid. It was a, it was a narcotic investigation. It was a rock solid case. And I think it dipped into maybe a homicide or something to that effect. But so Usually, the, the, the saying is, defense attorneys, if the case is that solid, don't argue the facts, argue against the government. Set up, you know, planted evidence, all that kind of stuff. You know, the quote-unquote monster. And so, <laughs> I'm sitting, this is my first time, I'm sitting at the prosecutor's table, it's my case. Now, I've been employed, before that, I've been in many trials. But when you're not the lead on the case, you sit in the witness room and you wait to be called. So this time I was at the prosecutor table and the defense is just going on and on about planning evidence against the defendant and blah, blah, blah. And I didn't know I was doing it until during the break. The judge, you know, admonished me. He said, dude, oh, I'm just paraphrasing, but stop rolling your eyes. <laughs> the, the, the jury is looking at you. So every time the guy, every time the, the, the defense said, and the government planted evidence. <laughs> and here I was roll my eyes and the government lied roll my eyes i didn't know i was doing it <laughs> until the so so then i'm i sat there you know uh, uh, st- uh raw straight with my eyes kind of just looking straight look, look straight ahead because now i was worried about sending these type of messages and again unconsciously i didn't know i was doing it so that go, i'm just t- that harkens back to the question of the day and or not trying to take take things personally. You know, you're on, the, the jury's looking at you. You are the client for the government. And when you're at that prosecution table, you have to really maintain your composure and because they're looking at you. And, you know, during the break, Harry and Honey meet outside and it takes, you know, a cigarette break. They're taking a cigarette break. And, you know, she gets around to saying, you know, you know, nothing's personal. And he said, um, you know, she, he knew she was going to get around to saying that. And that was the biggest lie in the game. He said, why did they say that? I mean, because it is personal. It's kind of hard not to take it personally when someone's calling you a monster, monster, that you did this thing, you did that thing. And again, from the book, that's late husband, my client's late husband. And the only thing we know for sure in this case that's provable is that you killed him. And Bosch comes back over the top and says, yeah, and I do it again. And she says, I know, Detective Bosch, and that's why we're here. You know, Harry's emotions are getting, getting I, I would not, not have talked to 
Honey Chandler. Now, she did say this is off the record, off the book. We're just having a conversation. Mm-mm. Nope, I'm not talking to her. Not talk, I don't trust her as, as far as I can throw her. Now, I know they're, well, I'm not going to give any spoilers about the TV series. So, but nah, I'm not, mm-mm, nope. I, won't, I wouldn't talk to, uh, I would just keep my eyes looking straight. So then we have Bosch going back to after Belk finished his closing. Again, Harry had a problem with Belk's closing because he said it was too short. And then and, and Belk said, don't worry about it. Yeah, everyone keeps telling Harry, don't worry about it. But it's his case. And if it's a shit case, then he's the one that everyone will pounce on. So after court is adjourned for the day, Bosch responds back to the Hollywood division. And we see Edgar working on the uh, officers, investigating officers' chronological record. Remember, those cron sheets are the lifeblood investigation. And again, Michael uses that over and over again, especially back um, in the Black Echo, even in the Black Ice. You know, you, we always go back to the cron sheets. Again, it's worth saying again, the cron sheet is the lifeblood of your investigation. You know, and something else that one of the things I liked about Michael, and I picked up on this in this particular portion of a conversation between Harry and Edgar. Bosch thought about what Edgar said about Chandler. It was interesting how, how often a threat from a woman, even a professional woman, was reduced by a cop to a sexual threat. He believed that most cops might feel like Edgar, thinking there was something about Chandler's sexuality that gave her an edge. They wouldn't admit that she was damn good at her job, whereas the fat city attorney defending Bosch wasn't. You know, any police officer, and I'm saying any male cops, because I'm male cops specifically, anyone who thinks that just because a female, she's a female, that she's not good, yeah, but you're about to get your ass chewed up. Or then, you know, I've seen a lot, and I have two female AUSAs or prosecutors I dealt with, and they are killers and you don't fuck with them. Now, unfortunately they knew it, you know, unfortunately, you know, if they are aggressive in what they do, they're, they're, they're deemed to be a bitch or something. Like I said, like, like Edgar said here, Oh, she must be doing sexual favors. That's why she's in charge of this particular squad or this particular unit of the U.S. attorney's office or, or the prosecutor's office. Again, like Harry said, it couldn't be that she was good. It had to be also, oh, it had to be something sexual, that she did something sexual. And I've seen it happen. And I looked at cops, I'm like, dude, you are crazy. And again, you do it at your own peril because you fuck up. You fuck up. She's going to crush you. <laughs> and so, you know, and so, yeah, I've seen I, some of my best. Now, I've, again, I have both. But I, I have both, you know, good, you know, men prosecutors who are phenomenal and female prosecutors who are phenomenal. And again, Guys, listen to me. If you discount a prosecutor or a defense attorney because of their gender, yeah, you're gonna get your shit headed to you in the um on a silver platter. And you know, here we also see Harry is thinking about Edgar, because you know, Edgar in his eyes wasn't a true homicide investigator. Again, from the book, he never seemed to understand that a homicide squad wasn't a job, it was a mission. As surely as murder was an art for some who committed it, homicide investigation was an art for those on the mission. It chose you. You didn't choose it. You know, I'm going to push back up on Harry on this. I, of course, 
I did the same thing back in the Black Echo, and my brother and I talked about it. But Harry kind of said some shade at Edgar back in the Black Echo. And Edgar came back over top of him and said, dude, I do my job. Now, his job, he's motivated by money. You know, he, as he said here when he was talking to um, Bosch, Edgar says, yeah, OT, the OT spigot is on and I'm drinking as much as I can. But he's not, he's not just taking the money and just sitting on his ass. Edgar's good at his job. Now, Bosch would do it, um, money be damned. And, and that's his motive. He has his own motive. My, my thought, as long as they're good at their job, I don't give a shit what they're motivated, they're mo- they're motivated about. I just want you to do your job and do it well. And as we can see here, Edgar, when he's properly motivated, he does a great job. And then so after Edgar and Harry finish talking, Edgar, you know, um, calls his wife and goes home. And that then brings Bosch into them. I got he has to call Sylvia. And we see that Harry and Sylvia, after a year of of them being together, that they have this ritual, you know, they start to spend more and more time together. And we see Harry trusts Sylvia because he tells about the dollmaker, you know, about, about the new case that, that possibly have implications of the dollmaker case. And he tells her that information. I mean, she technically, is, you know, she's earned that trust. You know, she says, don't worry about it. And he loves that unequivocal loyalty. It was beautiful, he thought, you know, and that's true. And I said it before, is once you get that kind of loyalty, that unequivocal lo- loyalty, l- ladies and gentlemen, hang on to it. But then he said he also felt immediately guilty because he never really t- totally opened up to Sylvia about the things that concerned him. And he was holding back. And now, because, you know, I never satis- got a real satisfaction from Michael Conley as what Cal Moore did to quote unquote fuck up his relationship with Sylvia. And I kind of think he's cleaning that. I wouldn't use the words cleaning it up, but I think now we see just the glimmer of things that would, because hey, if you want unequivocal loyalty, you got to give it. And it seems like Harry is holding back on Sylvia. He doesn't tell Sylvia everything. You know, he he wants to be alone with himself, and uh, Sylvia's trying to be there for him, but he kind of lies to her. You know, the, the, the case is pretty much over for the day. He's going to go home. He wanted to be home by himself. So, again, from, you know, so I think Michael is answering that question, what did Kyle Moore do to fuck up his relationship with Sylvia? And I start kind of seeing it, again, from the book. He hung up after telling her he would call her the next day. Afterwards, he looked at the phone on the table in front of him for a long time. He and Sylvia have been spending three to four nights a week together for nearly a year. Though Sylvia has been the one who spoke often about changing the arrangement and had even put her house for sale. Bosch had never wanted to touch that question for fear of might disturbing the fragile balance and comfort he felt with her. He wondered now if he was doing just that, disturbing the balance. He had lied to her. He was involved in a new case to some degree, but it was done for the day he was going home. He had lied because he felt the need to be alone with his thoughts, with the doll maker.
And that gets us to this episode's Everyone Counts or No One Counts. And for this episode, chapter one through four of The Concrete Blonde, my Everyone Counts or No One Counts person is Judge Alan Keyes. So I know everyone's like, okay, okay, hold on, Phil, hold on, hold on. He really didn't do anything. Well, that's the point. He set, he's setting the stage on how his courtroom was going to be run. And I like this particular book because Michael pulls back the drapes behind the scenes. You're starting to see how court um, decorum and things that goes on in the courtroom. And the fact that I respect judges like Alan Keyes because they run a tight ship. And even Harry says he believes this judge will give him a, a fair shake. Even though he got his job, he as a judge, Keyes got his job from um, President Carter and because he had a lot of experience with civil rights cases, specifically uh, some LAPD when it comes to some of the brutalities that were happening against black and brown people um, when it comes to chokeholds in, in LA. So my everyone counts or no one count person for chapters one through four is Judge Alan Keyes. So this concludes chapters one through four review of The Concrete Blonde. Thanks for your patronage and hanging in there with me. And I ask again for you to continue to go to Google, Spotify, Apple, where you and wherever you get your podcasts and continue to rate us five stars or better. And also, again, please continue to leave your comments. Those comments are very valuable and I really appreciate your feedback. And also, could you continue to share this podcast with your friends and family so that we could continue to grow? Also, join us at www.thethemtoolinepod.com for more investigative content. There you will find a more detailed experience concerning Harry Bosch and Michael Connolly. So next time on the Thin Blue Line podcast, Harry Bosch, we will continue a deep dive into the concrete blonde. Chapters 5 through 8. I'm 10-7 for the remainder. Bye.